and welcome to our third episode of Tasme Time Talks in Medical Education. Our new medical education podcast is aimed at trainees and early career educators with an interest in medical education. I'm Dr. Rob Cullum. I'm a GP trainee and member of the TASME committee. For those of you that haven't heard of TASME before, we're the trainee branch of ASME, the Association for the Study of Medical Education. ASME is a UK-based medical education organisation with a focus on promoting scholarship in the discipline. Each month, TASME, along with JASME, our medical student and foundation doctor group in ASME, hosts a medical education-themed Twitter discussion, which we call hashtag MedEdForum. Here we discuss interesting medical education topics and going forwards each month TASME time will be picking up on that same topic and exploring it in greater depth with an expert in the field. Do feel free to join us at future hashtag MedEd forums on Twitter. Further details can be found on the events pages of the ASME website and also on our Twitter page. You can also follow us on the evenings using the hashtag. In June, as part of ASME's wider work to celebrate Pride Month, we're discussing all things LGBTQ plus in medical education. Alongside my colleague, Dr Katie Stevenson, another member of the TASME committee, we were joined by a fabulous panel of LGBTQ plus doctors with varying perspectives on LGBTQ plus medical education in the UK. We gained insights into the surgical perspective from McCarran Tree, member of the Pride in Surgery Forum, the medical student perspective from the amazing William Ballard, who forms part of the executive committee of the LGBTQ plus inclusive medical education alliance, also known as Lima for short. And finally, Dr. Joe Hartland, who is a medical educator at the University of Bristol. They sit on the medical schools council executive board for the EDI alliance. And as a queer activist, they are the lead author of the GLAD UK Medical School Charter on so-called LGBTQ plus conversion therapy. So make a cup of tea and join us for this episode where we will explore all things LGBTQ plus in medical education. Welcome to tonight's episode. Um, tonight we're going to be talking about all things um, LGBTQ plus medical education and we, we're trying something a little bit different tonight and so we've got a panel um, of three guests with us. Um, so I'm going to get them to introduce themselves. So um, we'll go in the order that you are on my screen. So Will, unfortunately, that means you're first. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself Um and your uh, interest in LGBTQ plus medical education. Hi everyone, my name is Will Ballard. Um, I use he, him pronouns. I am a final year medical student at Hull York Medical School. Um, I've actually just passed my exams, so I will be soon graduating as a doctor, which is very nice. <laughs> um, and in terms of my career up to date, in terms of med ed, um, I've done quite a lot. I picked up quite a lot during um, the COVID lockdown. I've published a couple of papers that I'm very proud of. Um, and really getting involved with med education was one thing that I wanted to do from the start. I was one of them kids in school that always wanted to help out, always wanted to teach the younger kids. And when I got into uni and got that chance, um, I absolutely took it. And LGBT is very close to my heart. I'm a trans man myself. Um, and I'd love to see more education and more representation with myself and other people. Uh, in the curriculum so it's just one of these things that I picked up and wanted to do so I would say that my definite definite current 
area of interest it's specifically trans healthcare and what we can do to improve it especially with the long waiting times in the country currently um but yeah that is my big point that's one of my big things but yeah thank you for letting me be here tonight Brilliant. Well, thank, thanks for joining us, uh, Will. It's fantastic to have you. Uh, next, going around my screen, we've got Joe. So do you want to introduce yourself, Joe? Yeah, hello. Uh, my name is Joe Hartland. I use the pronouns they or he. Um, we could use they in this space, please. And um, I currently work for the University of Bristol, uh, where I lecture in medical education. Um, and I have a kind of very specific remit that I cover there, which looks at how we can create a curriculum that does more to centre marginalised voices in healthcare education. And LGBTQ plus is obviously one of those marginalised groups and intersects with other groups that we'd want to be including in the curriculum, groups especially that have been quite historically uh, absent or, or, I mean, absent implies that it was perhaps done uh, without intent, I think probably has sometimes been done with intent, those absences. Um, and I'm also the lead author and uh, sort of independent activist on the GLAD um, UK uh, medical school charter focusing on so-called conversion therapy and supporting a ban on inclusion, on inclusive conversion therapy ban in medical schools, um, which has been a big project and something we're really proud of. Uh, I also have a role as the Deputy Education Director for Student Equality, Diversity, Inclusion, which means that I focus on thinking about how we can create a better culture and environment for learning at Bristol. Um, and we have a number of projects that run on that. Uh, I got involved in medical education as a medical student, um, which was a little while ago now. And I... Um, I specifically got involved in LGBT education when I experienced quite uh, sort of an example of quite overt homophobia uh, from a lecturer and tried to sort of make a complaint about that and uh, got asked by the medical school if I really wanted to be known as the problem making gay. Um, and my sort of ongoing joke on that is that I made a career out of being a problem making gay. Uh, that kind of inspired me to to take on that mantle, I guess, and to live up to it. Um, and since then, I've worked as a clinical teaching fellow um, and then sort of left the NHS um, in 2018 to work full-time at the University of Bristol. Brilliant. Thanks, Joe, for joining us. And, and I can already tell it's going to be a really interesting discussion based on that story, if nothing else. Um, so last but by no means least, going around my screen, Karen, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi there, my name is Karen Cho. I am a, a SD4 Trauma Orthopedic Registrar in North East London. My pronouns are she and they. I am also the British Orthopedic Training Association Culture and Diversity Representative, which was a newly created role uh, from last year. In addition, I am also one of the founding members of the Pride in Surgery Forum, um, which is a LGBTQ network and for surgeons in uh, the UK. Um, we are mainly working with RCS England, um, but it's hopefully we'd like to hope that we're intercollegiate. But my roles and my main passions are promoting culture, um, positive work culture and improving diversity, equity and inclusion within orthopedic surgery, which is the least diverse uh, specialty, but also the one that has the 
probably the biggest stereotype about what a place, what kind of specialty it is, and how, in um, the theme of LGBTQ, how unwelcoming it is to LGBTQ members. So my aim is to try to change that narrative, and to promote uh, orthopedic as a specialty that is welcoming to all. Uh, we're probably the specialty that requires the most change. However, I feel like we are the ones who have recognized that and also are pushing for a lot of change. Um, specifically within medical education and training, I am part of BOTA, which is a training association. So we do a lot of work with medical students and junior doctors with regards to learning and how they can, uh, how we can improve surgical training and education for younger and, um, and trainee surgeons. Uh, in addition, a big part of our work is outreach, um, and so that's one. Of, that's going to be one of the key areas of the work that we have for Prism, is to ensure that we um, speak to medical students and junior doctors early, so that they are aware of surgery being an option for them. I think a lot of people count it out for them, and we're trying to change that. And so, a lot of our work is to get to medical students early, speak to them about it, let them understand that surgery has a place for them, and that they are welcomed. And so that's going to be our main pieces of work in the coming years. So thank you for having me, everyone. Thank you so much, all three of you, for coming on. It's really appreciated um, and using your time and energy to discuss issues that are close to your heart, but probably at times challenging. It really means a lot. So thank you so much. Um, I'm Katie. I'm a GP trainee and one of the TASME podcast co-host and TASME vice chair. I am in the southwest as well. Woohoo, Joe. So I'm in Plymouth, just a couple of hours south. Um, I I am cisgendered and I am straight. Um, so I'm very much privileged in many ways that I I don't even have to think about on a day-to-day basis. Um, I am very much interested in social equity and medical education. It's been sort of a driving force for me since I became involved in medical education from my early years as an undergraduate medical student, very much interested in widening access um, um, and sort of lots of different social issues in medical education, of which LGBTQI is obviously something that is really important as well. Um, So that's just a little bit about me. Rob, did you want to say say anything yeah so uh my name's rob i use the pronouns he him and i am a gp trainee as well i'm the secretary on the tasme committee um and the other podcast uh co-host and um i guess for me i have a very similar background in medical education to katie and i i started about halfway through my undergraduate training being interested in it um and have developed that interest over time. Um, I spent two years as a clinical teaching fellow um, where I spent quite a lot of time trying to um, improve the diversity of clinical cases that we used in our teaching um, in ways where, um, I guess, where it wasn't directly relevant to the clinical condition the patient had or certainly wasn't in a more traditional way. And that's something I'm really interested that hopefully we'll be able to talk a little bit about later today because it's certainly something... I don't think happens enough. Um, I guess on that note, actually, it'd be really good to hear a little bit about, um, we've already started to hear about some of the fantastic work you're doing, but I guess it'd be really interesting, starting perhaps with you, Will, to hear about some of the work that you've been doing um, on on teaching around particularly um, trans healthcare um, at medical school and and tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, so... 
it's really interesting how all this uh, kind of started with me is that I kind of um, in my very first year of uni um, went to one of uh, my heads of year and was basically like I have no idea what I'm doing at med school what did I sign up for um, I don't I no longer wanted to be a neurosurgeon it's what I originally wanted to be and I was really confused I didn't know what to do and I'd recently come out as a trans man and he didn't know what to say to me either um, and I was just kind of like I'm really interested in LGBT healthcare but I would have no idea what to do I'd have no idea what to get into it and he kind of sat there and was like me neither and he was really helpful we kind of sat there googled a couple of ways of how to do it and med ed came up and I was like do you know what I'll give it a shot I'll see what I can do and I kind of from there was helping with building parts of the curriculum and seeing if we could add anything so that I was represented um which was really nice and then last year I was approached by some of the EDI committee at the university and was like we're doing a staff student project um and we want you to come up with something that's going to be great what would you like to do it on and I was like I have a close friend in um, a couple of years below myself and a couple of other friends in other courses and was like we want to do something about LGBT healthcare what can we do we were like how about we do a language workshop so we we sat the, the four to five of us because we had a staff member as well um, and sat and created this amazing workshop on how you would teach younger students how to use pronouns how to take certain histories sensitive histories these types of things um we had things in there from there's lots of different types of people um we didn't base it all around lgbt but it was heavily lgbt and then we ran it out to 50 staff members and we had so many people that came up to us afterwards and was like we love this let's get it in the curriculum what else are you doing and i was like this is a real shock and I was very lucky enough that I then from that had a lot of people go out on social medias and was like we've just watched this amazing thing from these students and it kind of all went from there I'm very lucky to have a couple of people from different GP practices around kind of Yorkshire contact me and be like we'd love you to come and talk to our GP practice and it's actually turned into a kind of a business model in a way of me going having this conversation with them asking them what they want and then coming later and performing it to the performing what a word um, <laughs> but educating a big group of like postgraduate staff members that are from healthcare practitioners um, and healthcare assistants all the way through to very very trained GPs and consultants if I've been into the hospital and it's been incredible and you have so many people come up to you and was like I didn't know this and I didn't know this I'd love to implement this can you tell me a little bit more and then I go and get all of my information that I've got stored in my Google Drive and be like here there's plenty you can have it um so yeah it's been an amazing journey and I actually was in York the other night um I got asked by um, a group called Nimbus Care to come and talk to their staff members and I went and delivered it to a big group of them and standing up on stage in a fancy suit is always a nice thing to do so yeah that's what I'm currently at in terms of delivering trans healthcare. Wow that is absolutely fantastic Will and I think it really reflects some of the things that are going on out there in terms of the literature and what we've had in, as part of Twitter discussions where there's a lot of really sort of sort of student-led initiatives happening um, and many more senior educators not being as up-to-date and not understanding um, some of the things that you've been teaching on and I think that was sort of reflected in potentially what Joe said as part of that introduction um, when they were met perhaps with not as much um, enthusiasm or respect or 
intrigue. So I, I don't know whether you'd like to share some of your story there, Joe, and think about what other what other stories are out there, essentially. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I think there's a huge power in using students as educators and um you know, having having been a student who was interested in this, it created a gateway and an opportunity for me to have a future in medical education that might have been quite difficult for me to get into otherwise. Um, I think there are significant risks with it. And I think it's really important that we don't lose sight of the fact that pretty much anything that we would do will come with a risk or a benefit, you know, that we've always got to weigh that up. Um, when I work with students, one of the things I try and do if they want to engage and teach something is want to think about what reciprocal benefits look like for them. Um, so that uh, if it's possible to pay, to pay. Um, if not, to think about what that means for portfolio development, opportunities for publishing, um, thinking about certificates and things that are very much targeted so as to help them with their future application processes. Um, and the next thing that I try to really, really hard to do is not only to supervise them in the sense of um, helping them with the LGBTQ plus content or, or whatever content that they're trying to deliver, but helping them develop as medical educators. Because while students are recipients of education, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are experts in pedagogy and how to deliver um, education itself. And so I think one of the roles that sometimes gets missed a little bit when we're over-reliant on students is that we don't empower them to learn about the theory of education and what that means and how they can apply that to their work. So I like to try and do that. Um, and I think the other thing that's important to consider is that um, you know, at the end of the day, they're students and they're meant to be, they're meant to be studying. They're not necessarily meant to be teaching. And therefore, there has to be a very clear line in which those students feel able to go, actually, no, this is too much for me and I can't do this right now. Uh, and therefore, you have to have staff who have the skills and abilities to take on those topics, to represent and to listen, even if perhaps it's not their lived experience to which they're teaching. Um, so, for instance, some of the work that I've done um, around race and ethnicity has been very informed by my students and we've developed teaching together, but it would be inappropriate for them to be constantly delivering it. And so I've sort of learned through them and with them about what kind of messages and stories they want told. And I make sure I caveat my presentations before I give them with that information that I am not speaking about my own lived experience, but I am representing the views of others who couldn't be here today. Um, so I think, yeah, there's a huge power and a huge benefit to bringing in students as educators. But I think we mustn't lose sight of the fact that they are students and that they deserve to feel free to study. And disproportionately, topics like this mean that our students who are most marginalised end up taking on additional responsibilities uh, instead of just learning. I think that's a really powerful point. Joe and I know it's something we that came across in a lot of the discussions that we had on Twitter earlier this week around that challenge that that um, students often feel under pressure to deliver this to some extent due to that gap and I think it's one thing when you've got a situation like Will who clearly talks really positively about his experience and that's fantastic. And I think we absolutely shouldn't be blocking that. But on the other hand, we, as you say, we need to be mindful of the 
the other aspects and the, the risks as well. I think you've you've put that much better than I can, so I'll um move on. Um Will, did you want to come back on um that? Yeah, I just wanted to say that I I also absolutely a hundred percent agree. I I know as I am still kind of a student at the moment that I have been in that situation where I felt like I definitely was the only one that was capable to talk about it. Uh, a great way that the med school helped me with that so that I didn't have to constantly deliver it is that quite a lot of our lecture base is already pre-recorded. Um, and so we pre-recorded what we'd done with the staff workshop and anything additional that I've added to that. And those pre-recorded things have been added into the curriculum, which is really nice. Um, I think I was very lucky to have what I have had at med school I've in an incredible med school that is very very focused on EDI which is so nice um but yeah no I definitely have felt that way in terms of that I sometimes felt like I was the lone the lone the lonesome little guy that could only do it himself (laughs) but it's nice always to meet other people like yourselves that are doing it in other parts of the country as well so yeah it's it's nice to know that there's other people out there (laughs) there's a group of us Thank you so much. Um, definitely. I think that's one, I think medical education in general tends to join people together. There is a lot of grassroots work and I'm just loving your enthusiasm for life, Will, because when I was a student involved in medical education, I I was, I loved it and I loved being able to go to groups of, like you mentioned, going to groups of consultants and senior doctors and scary people and actually talking about a subject that I was so passionate about and actually informing them about something. And I think that's really powerful. So I love your energy. <laughs> I don't know whether it's just me, but I'm beginning to feel more jaded the more I go in the years go by. So hopefully your enthusiasm is re-energizing me. Talking about sort of moving forward and sort of getting older and more wiser and maybe not necessarily wiser, but moving through those healthcare training years. I wondered whether, Karen, you'd be able to share any of your experiences of um, LGBT medical education within that postgraduate sphere. And as you mentioned in your introduction, within an area within a specialty that is historically um, uh, not necessarily as inclusive or accepting as potentially other medical specialties. Um, so I'd be really keen to learn a little bit more and hear a bit more from you if possible. Um, thank you, Katie. With regards to LGBTQ healthcare, um, you know, we, I have had probably, you know, minimal teaching about LGBTQ healthcare as a medical student. And I think the the topic of it just disappeared when you graduate. So I unfortunately was not um, exposed to that as much as I came through medical school and as I came through surgical training. It was, I've always been in a relatively welcoming environment, I felt. Um, So it's, I guess it didn't quite occur to me that we weren't really learning about it, but I was involved in it in a professional, like as in a, in a personal sphere, but not really professionally. And as an LGBT surgeon, there were, that was something that I was a bit more focused about, about how we can make sure that the environment is welcoming and inclusive for everyone, because I love surgery and I want to get into it, but I've never seen anyone who looks like me, who is queer, still doing surgery. And so I had no role model to look up to, to believe that this was possible. And I wanted to do probably the whitest, most heteronormative, uh, you know, masculine, perceived masculine specialty. And so, but I never, that didn't deter me, but I can understand how that could deter a lot of people. And there is, there were definitely moments when I was in orthopedics, when I was like, do I really want to be doing this? Do I really want to be in this environment where you're constantly having that subconscious micro stress 
environment where you're con- you know watching your bag watching what you say kind of on alert a lot of the time especially within I guess a lot of theater culture that is still very old boys club so I am I guess more focused on trying to make the training and learning environment um, by a, a bit more welcoming and inclusive and more diverse so that people feel safe to want to be a surgeon but also to feel safe training there because with the nature of training where you're constantly rotating through uh, placements that will be affected by the fact that you are hiding a part of your personality and aspect of your personality and you have to essentially come out every six months uh, to a new boss and a boss who is you know, probably 80% 80 to 90% a chance going to be a white cisgender heterosexual, like heterosexual male um, so as a queer Asian um, you know biologically female surgeon I do not feel like I feel sometimes safe enough to do so and I often often do not come out probably within uh, the beginning for a couple of months because I'm trying to gauge my environment around me to see whether or not it's safe. And so that is a lot of, you know, background micro stress that you're constantly having to manage in an already very high stress environment. So I'm trying to change that so that people do not have to feel like they're walking on eggshells all the time. They're having to bite their tongue whilst they're in a an environment where they, I just want them to be able to be themselves authentically and show that being yourself authentically is uh, better for surgeries, better for healthcare, and it's better for the patient ultimately. So much of what you've just said there is so powerful and absolutely for me, I think one of the most important things that I feel a responsibility as a as a gay man and as a medical educator and as a as a doctor intertwined is that role modeling to try and and make I guess things slightly easier for people that that follow us um through pathways and to see that and I appreciate that my chosen career pathway of general practice probably is more inclusive um in some ways than orthopedics probably in lots of ways than than orthopedic surgery at least from a perspective of, of an outsider I, I never wanted to be a surgeon and I'd be lying if I said I I did. Um, but at the same time, I, I think it is important. And I, I remember at, at one point at medical school thinking about leaving because I didn't think that you could possibly be an openly gay doctor. I, I genuinely, those two things didn't compute in my head. And it wasn't that long ago that I went to medical school in the grand scheme of things. Um, and I'm not sure when I came to the realisation that worked, but it it was something I really struggled with. And I think having increasingly open role models in various ways is really important. So I guess, again, thank you for being that person or, or, or one of those people in orthopaedics, because I think it is really important. Will, um, did you want to come in there? Sorry. Yeah, no, I just wanted to say that what you said is like, yeah, really powerful. And I think that, I'm definitely someone that wants to go into surgery and I would definitely say I had a role model now um, just because I true like I I truly believe that I, I haven't found somebody that I could use I, I haven't like you said most people are cisnormative heteronormative in them kind of work roles and to actually see someone that isn't is really nice change so yeah no to put a positive spin on that absolutely I've got one now <laughs> This is actually a recruitment drive, so I'm glad I managed to bring someone to the dark side. 
<laughs> you can wear a suit Maybe every not day. Orthopedic. <laughs> May, I, I'm thinking like breasts or plastic, but still, a surgery definitely. <laughs> I'm sure Karen's got time to convince you otherwise. <laughs> I think Joe has something to add, sorry. Yeah, I mean, okay, so... <laughs> I get on my high horse about this a little bit because this is this is an area that particularly interests me. Um, and um, so I think, so there's a piece of work that I'm kind of looking at exploring anyway within this domain, which is that um, I think one of the challenges that we have in medical, well, in, edu- in, in medicine generally at the moment, whether that's surgery or, or whatever profession, is that visible queerness is associated with being unprofessional. To be visibly queer in a healthcare environment is not seen as a professional trait. And that's true, I think, in many ways, because I think essentially the close or the further you move away from the cisgendered white heteronormative man, the least or the less professional you are perceived as. Um, And so the closer you can move yourself towards that model, um, the more you will be treated with respect, the more you will be seen as being um, a professional and your behavior fitting in with it. Now, I have students and I have colleagues who talk a lot about how they change their identity and their presentation when they go on placements, um, especially students who will say things to me like, well, I've never experienced homophobia on placement, but then I go out of my way to make sure that no one knows I'm gay that no one knows I'm trans or non-binary and so they go out there and they are misgendered or they don't participate in social conversations and when you think about the learning that takes place in healthcare education it is primarily social learning and when we hold something back that is so primal about ourselves about our entire identity outside of our workplace can we really have the same form of social learning that people who have cis privilege and who have heteronormative privilege have we can't because we cannot make the same connections with people. And what Karen said about that idea of scoping and of trying to figure out, is this space going to be safe for me, is really interesting. There was an article in the British Student Doctor Journal in the LGBTQ plus issue that um, referenced that particular topic. Um, and talked to, the author talks about how she tries to mention queer topics to see how colleagues might respond to it before coming out. Um, and that's just that's just a, a huge stress to put on yourself and to try and process that whilst already working in a high stress environment. And I don't think we necessarily appreciate the impact that it can have on, on, on our educational attainment, on our ability to feel like we fit in and we're safe. Um, and I think for many straight and cisgender colleagues they just don't see that they just think that everything's fine now everything's better everything's good um and it is in some ways but in many ways we still have a lot of work to do sorry less positive rand uh, no i think i think i think if we'd spent the entirety of this episode talking really positively I think that we would be doing a massive disservice to the topic. Um, So I'm glad that we're not doing that, if not because I'm glad we're in that situation. Um, Great. I I have a lot of cynicism to bring to the plate. So (laughs) let's go. (laughs) Um, Karen, did you want to come back in on that? 
Yeah, thank you, Joe. I mean, there is so much that you covered that I'm having to type some notes to make sure I don't, I don't miss anything. But what you talked about in terms of hiding party identity, uh, that was actually mentioned quite a bit within the Kennedy report, which is the, the DI report that the Royal College of Surgeons uh, commissioned and was published last year. And it covers a lot of different aspects of diversity, but one of the biggest ones they mentioned was racial, and I would guess that cultural diversity in where people had to code switch to present themselves um, to medical school, to placement, because they felt like they had to present themselves in a certain way. And I think if we think about queer people, but then we add on the intersectionality of being you know, from a ethnic minority in religion, then there's a, a lot of additional steps that will very quickly pile on and as you say, it will affect your learning. And a large, a big part of the work that they're trying to do at the college is looking at differential attainment and how that is, um, how that is, you know, the disparities that we see in ethnic minority communities. And I don't, I don't think they even thought about um, being queer uh, or LGBTQ and being an ethnic minority and how that would affect your uh, attainment and exams. So I think it's a very interesting aspect, and the college are very you know, they're, they're really supportive, but they're still kind of new to a lot of this information. And this, you know, it's very, very nuanced. And when you have the most, the foremost senior leaders in the college being white cisgender, heterosexual male, you, there's gonna, it's gonna take some time for that learning to trickle, I would say up. Um, so it's, it's something that is very, very prominent. And I de definitely think about it a lot and trying to improve that so that people do not feel like they have to change themselves just to become a doctor and as you know Rob said you you actually thought about leaving medicine because you didn't think you could be a, a successful successful LGBTQ doctor and I definitely had very similar feelings when I when I was coming through medical school I didn't know anybody who was LGBTQ and a doctor until I went to a glad dinner my very first glad dinner and it was very very eye-opening and it it I can't uh, express how important that moment was to have that representation and visibility of people who share this part of my identity, um, who have gone through the same experience as me and have been able to succeed and pursue the career that they want. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it's, a, a, as you know, as Will mentioned, having role models is actually so important. I think we underestimate the impact that we have. And so it's really something that I'm trying to push to be visible um, because, you know, even if it helps one other person, I think that's more than enough. I really like that you said that the idea as well of helping one other person is more than enough because I think that we also have to accept that actually we're doing this and I think it's fantastic that people are making that being those role models and and stuff but at the same time we've got to balance that with our responsibility to ourselves and I, I guess there is that element that comes in there around safety again and uh, I guess I'm still I uh, I don't know whether I've mentioned this to any of you before. I think Katie knows, but I, I had had a homophobic incident from a colleague at work um, just over a year ago now. And it, it still impacts me some 15 months later in ways that I like, and it's silly or it's not silly. And that's, I guess the point, isn't it? Because it feels silly. I feel silly. I feel like I should just be able to pick myself up and just move on. That's one person. And I think we have to balance those two things. So I, I find it quite a difficult thing to balance, I guess, in that sense. 
Um, and as as Joe knows, like I, I had a little bit of a fanboy moment over over inviting particularly Joe because I followed Joe on Twitter for some time now, and and in lots of ways, Joe is everything I aspire to be and everything I feel I could never be in this in in this space. So um, I feel I need to get that in in now, just uh, so that everything I've said, if it sounds like rubbish, it, it's Joe's fault. It's my. Uh, <laughs> Wow! That went yeah, from... just really yeah, right. That went that went from fanboy to throwing me under the bus quite quickly, didn't it? <laughs> that says a lot. About <laughs> from your stories, um, this and, and from what I understand, obviously from friends and media and reading, it is is a very it can be a very hostile environment um if you identify as lgbtq especially with um sort of the media pushing some very awful narratives at the moment and um i i I hate asking this question of people who identify with with lgbt communities um but mainly for our listeners um how can we as cisgendered um heterosexual people um be better allies in the workplace and um especially within medical education and I feel like I am doing some of the reading doing some of the work but I think for um and I would urge listeners who also identify as um cisgendered or um heterosexual um in this podcast to go away and do their own reading and look up these different societies that each of our guests are working for and look at the work they're doing instead of just asking them but seeing as we're on a p- podcast I would be very grateful if you could share um <laughs> what what your take home message for allies would be yeah if that's okay <laughs> um so take home message for anyone that maybe isn't a part of the community um for me um it's always that there will be voices around you that are talking and it i think it's your job to listen um i think it's a really small ask you can listen to little kids or how they babble all day and you could listen to all the elderly when you're maybe on a geriatrics ward or even to your parents or your own children at home um and i think that there are voices to be listened to and it's making sure that you do give that time to listen um there's many of us all across the country and i would say across the world too that are trying to give you this information um in some way or another um and if that be that you're going to learn something off maybe this podcast today or you've got a local lgbt staff network or you've even got friends and family that are part of the community i'm sure that if you wanted to ask a question most of us are very willing to answer but at the same time it also shouldn't have to be us that has to educate you on everything. There's plenty of stuff. I always say to people that there are many questions that I'm willing to answer, but there's also many that I'm not. And if you are very curious, then you should go to Google for those questions. Love that. Really love that. Well, that is spot on. Love that yeah, advice. That's my take. Um, you wouldn't just go and ask any random <laughs> member of the public lots of different questions. Um, we have ease of access to a lot of information just go and do your own reading, do your research. Mm. Love it. Thank you. And if anybody knows, um, I don't think I've spoken with any of you before today. Um, I'm definitely, definitely learning loads and listening far more than I usually do because I don't normally shut up. So thank you. This is this is excellent. Um, 
Does anybody else have anything to add? Uh, yeah. Um, okay, so I think the first thing, I think that, so I'm going to start this conversation about allyship um, with, with a sort of statement that I think I want people who, who are considering allyship to reflect on, which is that you do not get to decide if you are an ally. You are called an ally, but the people that you ally yourself to. So it is your behaviours that need to seek to prove that your behaviour is worthy of allyship. So we had a really interesting um, space uh, space on Med Twitter a little recently that was kind of focused around LGBT stuff. And we talked about um, some really interesting topics in there. And one of the things we sort of talked about was um, examples of sort of bad allyship. And I think that's a really interesting sort of an sort of an oxymoron in a way because it's if it's bad allyship it's not allyship right it's, it's just not um you're not doing it right and for me one of the things that i try in my training of staff and students to get people to understand is that i often hear people saying i um i'm worried about getting it wrong and that often stops people from engaging with confronting things with having conversations with thinking about how you address someone this fear holds you back but i think one thing that i would say is that your success at allyship isn't just determined by how well you do things when they go right it's how you respond when they go wrong how do you respond when you are given feedback or you are given critique that you are not meeting that bar that you set if you can take that on and you can learn and grow and accept the fact that your intent and your impact are two separate things, you may not intend harm, but you may cause harm without realizing it. If you can process that, then that is a really good place to start with allyship. Um, so yes, educate yourself. Yes, do all those things. But it is important that you are open to critical feedback in your allyship and there's a lot of fragile allies out there who really do not like being told that they're not they're not quite meeting the mark um yeah um i i really like what you said about um that allyship can be really fragile with certain individuals and um i think me and rob have both had a conversation about this prior uh, privately previously um about being an active bystander and also being an active ally as well um and that there's a difference between just being an ally and being an active ally um and i really like the whole idea is that like yes you can be a very good ally but without being active you sometimes lose the point of that allyship as well um that's kind of the little bit that i'd like to add if that's okay <laughs> i think that's i think that's a really interesting point um and I think so. Everyone's going to come at this with slightly different opinions. I'm not sure I necessarily. I'm not sure I necessarily believe um, that allyship can be allyship without it being active. Personally, um, I think if your allyship is not in some way active, then you're failing to engage with the entire topic. Um, that doesn't mean that your allyship has to be outspoken and confrontational. That allyship can be recognizing acts of microaggression and saying to someone, are you okay? That looked really uncomfortable. Do you want to talk? And I, can I do anything to support you? That is active allyship, but it's not confrontational, right? Everyone can do that. Everyone can learn and recognize and then check in with someone and see if they're okay. Um, for me, being an ally is, is a verb, it's a doing thing. 
right? And if you're not doing, you're not you're not being an ally. Um, now that might mean educating yourself, and that's fine, but it can't always be about educating yourself. At some point, you need to take something into action. Um, and I think there's a lot of people who find it very easy to be an ally when it is easy. And again, not allyship. Allyship means sticking it out when it's hard. So it doesn't just mean going to Pride and putting glitter on your face and like buying a coffee that happens to be in a rainbow mug. This is not allyship, okay? That is easy and performative. We do not want performative allyship anymore. We are beyond this. Have you got any thoughts, Karen? Yeah, there's so much running through my head. I feel like every time Joe speaks, my I'm just like so amazed by your eloquence. Um, I think it's you've got so many important things to talk about. I think on the topic of allyship, we we can do a whole podcast episode just on allyship and part two. Um, there's you know there's so much to to cover, but I think what really I guess a big part of allyship is to you know as Joe mentioned is to afraid to not making mistakes and accept that you will get things wrong because sometimes being LGBTQI get things wrong and. You have to live with that discomfort because discomfort is learning and that's what mental care education is, right? We're here to learn. And if you're always I mean, not doing the hard thing, as Joe mentioned, then you are never really pushing your, you know, your allyship and, you know, learning to be a better allyship because I think allyship is a lifelong thing. Well, because at this moment in the world that we live in, we still have you know, disparities for rights and um, in in everything, and so we the work is got still so much to be done, and until that work is done, um, we still have to keep being active. Learning from resources, I think, as Will mentioned, um, you're right. You know, we live in an, in an age, the information age. If you don't know something, Google it. That's what we do when we're on placement, right? Um, before we go to teaching, we're googling everything that we were supposed to read. So there's more than enough resources out there, uh, but. I think personally, as an LGBTQ person, if someone wants to be uh, demonstrates allyship, is the things that you do that probably I I know that you would you would say because no one's ever prompted you to do something or you've you done it on your own accord, and it's really small things that really make a difference. I think about speaking up or if you feel safe to do so to speak up against homophobic or transphobic behavior or comments. And you being, and not just that, actually, any racist comments or anything that is discriminatory. If I see that you are speaking up against it, then I know that you will be an ally because you're not, nobody's prompting you to do so. Um, and you're actually putting yourself um, out there, which takes a lot of bravery. But I think being an ally does take courage, um, as is being out and open as, an, as a queer person. So, um, that's a lot to, to learn, I think. And that's, you know, with for the community ourselves, there's still so much learning that we need to do because we do have discrimination within the community as well. And so um, you're not alone in being an ally in learning. Um, and I think when we, when we go to the topic of asking how we can support, I think, as Will said, um, it's up to a certain extent when you feel like, okay, now I'm just spoon feeding you information. There's a lot of things that you can do yourself to gather that knowledge. Um, but I think there's always no harm to ask and I, a lot of it is down to how you approach it. Um, don't be defensive if you get something wrong and just be open and be like, I think I am un unsure about how to approach the situation or I witness something. Do you, 
can you help me you know learn how can i get how, how can i approach it in a different way next time and be supportive of someone so it's yeah allyship is a huge topic that i can no, just thank rant you on so much karen and i think um you know as we're all we're all doctors here um soon to be doctors and we should be self-critical introspective reflective individuals and we should have the um, capacity to do all of these things that you've described and to have the bravery and um, skills to be those people but time and time again we see within the healthcare system this herd mentality and it doesn't always work like that so some really key words and key lessons from you all thank you so much um joe did you have something to add yeah um so i thought this might be an interesting sort of segue um into sort of an aligned topic which you mentioned earlier katie about privilege and what privilege means in these situations so for those who are listening and unsure what privilege is, privilege is essentially the things that you can do on a day-to-day basis without ever having to think about them. They just don't occur to you as things that are worrisome or are going to be barriers to you. So when I apply for a job, I do not worry that the color of my skin is going to impact on the likelihood of me getting that job. I have a huge amount of white privilege that I carry with me everywhere. However, would I walk down kind of the high street in Bristol holding the hand of a same-sex partner? Probably not, because I know from experience that I will often receive abuse for that. I hold privilege and I also lack privilege. You know, it's a complex thing. Um, I came out as genderqueer about uh, probably about a year ago now. And so I started sort of changing the way that I uh, my gender presentation. So that meant that I um, tend to um, sometimes feminize my presentation. Often I go for sort of a mixed and androgynous feel to it. Gender queer to me is about um, positioning my queerness before my masculinity. Uh, and that's why I use both they and he pronouns. Um, and I notice quite a significant change in the way that I interacted with the world following that. Um, suddenly, uh, suddenly my queerness was far more visible to people. Um, I was breaking kind of, I, I, these, these unwritten rules or perhaps sometimes quite visible rules, um, of society that tell us how we should dress, how we should present ourselves, how we should work and live. And, uh, in a way that I hadn't really realized before as a gay man, I, I wasn't sort of, I wasn't as worried so I still experienced homophobia. I still experienced discrimination, but also I, I didn't, I didn't experience some other things, and I hadn't realised how much privilege I carried in that. And I think what Karen said earlier about the actually for the, the LGBT community itself getting things wrong, and also carrying different privileges within the group for LGBTQ plus people listening, I think it's important that we think about that. And as a genderqueer or non-binary person, I hold privilege that my trans siblings in the community do not hold. Um, And I can use my privilege. I can leverage it to create space and conversations that are safer for me to say than they might be for one of those people. And that, I think, is one of the ways in which we might link the ideas of privilege and allyship together, which is how can you leverage your privilege to create conversations and challenge things that might be very difficult for those who actually experience the discrimination to challenge. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, 
I I really like the the point of bringing privilege into things just because I think that like yourself and that you've mentioned that we have a lot of white privilege and we're very lucky to have that um I think that I've experienced privilege in a really odd way um from going as someone who grew up um assigned female at birth and and was kind of forced into kind of like dresses and makeup as a child I, I very much was treated as a woman as I would be um and then coming out as a trans man and going through that social transition and then luckily enough to started my medical transition as my voice started to lower and my face started to change shape and I was more oftenly correctly um, seen as a man my whole view of life kind of shifted around me um, just because I suddenly gained a privilege that I'd never had before um, to go from being sometimes the, the bossy girl that just got was not allowed to do anything to suddenly a man that could stand up and have his voice heard was a very strange thing when it first started happening and I think a lot of people don't realize that privilege does change throughout these types of groups and I'm very lucky that if I went as stealth and for anyone that doesn't know stealth, what stealth means is if I live my life not telling people I was trans that I'd probably get away with looking and being someone that had a, a a very large amount of privilege in life and I think that I sometimes have to realize what I've gained and bring myself back and realize that I'm very very lucky in the position I am I am in and I'd like to use that privilege in future to make sure that everybody else could eventually get just as much as I did or at least be able to have those opportunities that I have had as well due to this privilege that I've I've now gained um I just thought it was a good point to add to that kind of thing that it goes in multiple directions I, I think the juxtaposition of those two stories around gaining and losing privilege have given me an awful lot to reflect on. I often reflect on the fact that um, some of the things that Joe said around privilege, and, and I guess it comes back to that intersectionality as well, and I find some of the interaction between different types of privilege or absence of privilege in different domains and how they interact with each other in different settings really interesting, um, and it's something that I perhaps I'm ashamed to admit I'm not sure I've considered much before the last couple of years of my life but now I see a lot um and I am conscious that I have an awful lot of privilege and I'm not sure that I was as conscious of that until the last few years and I think that's something that is really important coming back to allyship the other way is someone who has a lot of privilege that just because I happen to be part of the LGBTQ plus community, that doesn't mean that I don't have a responsibility to allyship both to other communities uh, in other domains, but also very much so people within the LGBTQ plus community, because actually I, I very much um, believe that we have a lot of shared experience and we should be there to support each other, regardless of where we sit on that spectrum. And that, um, I like the idea of us being one community there to support and help each other. And I know that for some people is a controversial topic. Um, so maybe it's my turn to be political this this week, uh, Katie. But um, uh, that is very much where I sit. Um, is there anything you wanted to, to talk about, perhaps from your surgical experience around privilege, um, Karen? It's really interesting because the, there is a surgeon who is part of PRISM, um, uh, she's her name's Philippa Burns, and she's a vascular surgeon in Edinburgh, and she's a trans woman. And 
uh, one of her talks recently, she actually talked about how someone, when she came out to someone as trans, they said that you need to be prepared for the amount of privilege that you will lose as a white um, cisgender man when you transition. And I think it was very, um, it's like, I think for her recognizing that, um, despite being in, you know, by being by coming out as trans, you do lose so much, and it's something I think, as Rob mentioned, that you don't quite realize until you know maybe a moment, um, or someone's pointed it out to you. So it's within the surgical community, we are there's a lot of people with a lot of privilege who probably don't recognize it um, and don't use it, and even if they do recognize it, they probably don't. Uh, intend to use it sometimes to to be a good ally to be an to be an for active allyship so it's it's a very difficult topic because it's how because there are so many being with orthopedics because there are so many cisgender heterosexual males is how do we bring them along in our you know for lack of a better word battle or our movement to to make them understand that this is not that you have as much you can produce, give as much impact as we do by, you know, being active and speaking up. But you, being in your position, have so much privilege, and you can help change so much. And it's about letting, allowing them to know that this fight is involves them, and it, we include them, and we want them to be, you know, involved and participating and using that. But a lot of people um, don't see that people have actually come up to me and said that I'm a cisgender white male and I don't know how to use my privilege and in a way that is effective and not uh, condescending or in a way that is more harmful. So it's something that I think we still need to navigate and probably a lot of surgeons are coming around to it. Um, so I think the fact that we had the Kennedy report at the college is a, a sign that people are starting to recognize that and not only recognizing, but understanding that they also have a role to play in it, which I think is a learning process. And I think in different, as you enter different environments and you take, and you're taking on different roles, you need to recognize your privilege and try to help others. So, I mean, as a registrar and in a more senior position, I have that privilege that some maybe juniors don't have. And so it's about how do I support them in knowing, in helping them you know, have a better experience. Um, and But then there are also instances where I would hope, I would like my bosses or consultants to recognize their privilege and speak something about it. And and so it's, it's a very delicate balance um, and it's a process that takes quite a long time, I think. Even within, as you mentioned, Rob, in our, in our, within our community, the patriarchy still persists. And so it's about how do we break that down, you know? It, we can go on and on about that um i was yeah so i think that it, karen makes a really interesting point about like how how do we use privilege and how when people become aware of their privilege um what can they do so I was just thinking one of the things that i i think is really important to reflect on is um so these feelings of like guilt or you know the fact that I, I feel guilty I've not recognized it or I feel sometimes I feel guilty that I have privilege I feel awful that I have this privilege that you don't right sometimes that conversation comes up um we see that when we talk about white privilege we see that when we talk about sort of cisgendered and heteronormative issues and loads of things um and I think this is a really interesting phenomenon that people who are considering their privilege need to be aware of 
which is that when you start to become aware of it, or perhaps when you've been called out for something, um, this feeling of guilt, this reactionary feeling that you might have, maybe feelings of sadness and so on, all of which might seem good to express, actually what they do is they recenter comfort back on you um, as as the sort of the non-queer person in this environment who is suddenly sort of challenged. Um, and so what often ha- ends up happening when people are confronted with their privilege, regardless of the situation, is that often it's the the marginalized person who perhaps already pointed out that person's privilege who then ends up comforting them who ends up having to do all of the work of trying to make them feel more comfortable and what Karen said earlier about that feeling of discomfort and getting comfortable with it is really important Um, we know that learning takes place when we are in a position of slight discomfort Um, so so if you want to sort of go down, you know, the, the educational theory and where of the audience, I sh- I'll mention it just so I can score brownie points of those listening. But if we think about things like the zone of proximal development that talks about how we acquire sort of uh, knowledge and especially skill acquisition, and we think about how that looks, you have kind of externally, you have, I cannot do this. I cannot do this without any help, the skill or this piece of knowledge I do not have. And then in the middle, the zone of proximal development, we have, I can do this with help. And then at the center, you have, I can do this unsupervised. And what we try and do is we keep people learning by keeping them in this sort of zone of proximal development. Because once you get too comfortable, you stop learning, you stop progressing towards mastery of of a topic or a skill. And so that feeling of discomfort is important. Slight discomfort that doesn't completely derail you from being able to learn is good. So don't shy away from it talk about it with your friends who perhaps don't, uh, who won't need to comfort you and you sort of who aren't already marginalized and share that. But don't make it the center of the conversation when you talk to queer people or to people who experience racism and so on. That is unhelpful and it, it will be a big barrier to your allyship. Spot on. Thank you so much, Joe. Um, and really useful bringing it back to some medical education theory as well. Um, but it is so true. Um, <laughs> you, you learn best when you're in that area of discomfort, pushing that slightly and 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 challenging challenging yourself and challenging others appropriately, obviously. Um, I, I cannot believe how quickly this episode has gone. I have had um, an absolute... Um, wonderful time it's been really uh, really interesting and um has challenged me slightly as well which is really appropriate and really um really good i think um to sort of bring us bring us towards a close if that's all right um we have one final sort of question for our um our guest here tonight and that is um where do you see, um, and we've touched on this already, actually, with some of the take-home messages you've already put out there, but where do you see the future of LGBTQ medical education? Um, and that can be from uh, pre, pre-sort pre of healthcare professions, degrees, um, through to undergraduate, postgraduate, continuing education. Um, what do you see in the future? Karen, do you want to take this one first? Sure. Um, I will. I was just like I'm looking to my mirror ball and see what the future holds. Uh, I think if we're talking about the different stages of medical education. Um, what I would like to see, and what I would hopefully um, be able to help 
uh, in developing it's an LGBTQ health curriculum within all medical schools and recognizing that you know studies have shown that, and, and our recent census has shown that there are more more people younger people who are reckon, who are identifying as LGBTQ and so as our understanding of the gender identity continues to develop and people more and more identify as uh, outside of the gender binary, then it is, becomes more relevant for us to be learning this in medical school about how to support LGBTQ patients, but also LGBT students as well. So I'm hoping that we would be able to develop med- medical ed- education and surgical education about the, I guess, the unique challenges that LGBTQ people face. And this is just beyond, you know, HIV. We're talking about um you know, the LGBT community having a higher risk of mental health uh, problems, um, chronic chronic conditions as well, because they don't present themselves and they have different health behaviors that we need to recognize um, and try to treat because we have to treat. It is, you know, it's more than likely we will have LGBTQ patients. And so it's that under understanding that that is changing. And, and so I'm hoping with passionate medical students like Will, um, who have supportive medical schools who are open to hearing about their students views and what they find important um i think that's really a big step um you know contrasted to some people some of the medical schools who may not have been as important be- who may not have taken that on board as much such as maybe when joe was in medical school um i don't know how it, it would be when i went to medical school but um i think that's really a big part and then moving on from you know to postgraduate training it's about um, ensuring that we continue the development and that that curriculum is taken on by different colleges for different specialties as well because you know we just because we're queer doesn't mean that we are absent from a lot of the common like we, we will suffer from every single condition and disease and so it's about how do we support them at best in a psychosocial um, and biological uh, way so I would like to think that the education will continue specifically for surgery because i'm speaking from a surgical standpoint it's about you know thinking about every aspect of the patient pathway and how do we make sure that is if the patient feels safe um and respected and will receive the best care and that is ensuring that the care that we give them um and that's you know sorry ensuring that the that we check our own biases as well when we treat lgbt patients um and so how does that affect our the care that we give. And I think that is a big part of what we call non-technical skills within surgery um, and understanding these human factors that affect our the care that we deliver. Um, and I think by acknowledging it, it's a, it's a big part. And so it's like, what do we do about that now that we know about it? Um, and understanding unique, I guess, because I you know recently we were you know speaking about, um, and Joe, we were on the same Twitter thread about you know, um, sexual health within the LGBT community and recognizing the unique uh, aspects that they may face. And but then also for uh, patients, uh, for the hospitals and for the clinician to recognize it, but also kind of do something about it. Um, there's no point just asking people to tell you information about themselves. You're not going to know how to use it effectively. Um, so I think that is it's going to involve a lot of work about asking the right people um, and seeing their viewpoints. Um, And I think, I guess, moving on from that is how do we ensure that we're not always burdening the people that are marginalized or that affects so that they can just continue to live their lives and not have to constantly be thinking about 
uh, educating others and activism because you need to look after yourself as well and because this is can be exhausting sometimes and sometimes you do feel like you have just I've just run out of steam about trying to stay positive as well because you know there's lots of different stresses that you have in just in life in general um, and so having that to have that mental energy to be active and educate is it is limited so we just need to recognize it and um, be aware of that so from a there's a lot of different aspects and I like to think that we can address at each, at each stage and that's also meaning that when you become consultant be open to learning understand why we have you know rainbow lanyards I think why we have pronouns on badges don't denounce it just because you don't understand it just be open to a conversation and trying to speak to someone who it actually affects um, so you know every as you say Joe every we, we are hopefully in an environment where we are constantly learning because this is what I mean at the end of the day medicine you're continually learning and that's what's exciting about it um, so yeah Thanks so much for that, Karen. So much to think about there, but I think it already starts to paint hopefully a positive picture, um, which is, I guess, a nice note to end on. Joe, is there anything you wanted to add to that? So, yeah. So my vision, sort of, I guess, for LGBTQ plus education or the future of it in healthcare, I think... um, there's loads of, there's so many things. There's so many things you could focus on for this, right? Um, as, as Will has already mentioned, the desperate need for us to educate um, our students so that they can help to look after trans patients to try and reduce the burden of waiting lists on, on um, so that we can have community care for our, our trans patients. Huge topic. Um, we desperately need to stop using stereotyping in our medical education so that we don't completely and constantly fuel these negative stereotypes that reinforce um, these kind of like often misogynistic, homophobic, transphobic, patriarchal views of medicine. Like we have to do more on that. Um, You could even say that actually, do you know what? A link to LGBTQ plus health medicine needs to become way more sex positive. We do not talk about sex enough. We do not talk about intimacy and what that means. We don't talk about sex as something that people enjoy. Um, We started doing that in the curriculum at at Bristol because we didn't talk about sex until year four when it became disease-making or baby-making. Those are the two ways that you can have sex, to get a disease or to make a baby. That is not true. Uh, we weren't talking about what queer sex and intimacy meant. We weren't talking about the fact that some people don't have sex, and that makes it a perfectly legitimate and healthy relationship still. So much work needs to be done on that. But I think for me, what I would like to see as a future for LGBTQ plus education is actually for us to move to a position where we teach about this um, from a feeling of joy. And by that, I mean we do not have education that is solely focused on trauma. And that is very difficult because at the moment, especially for trans and non-binary people, it is quite a traumatic period of time where rights are being constantly eroded and where we have a real pushback on some of the gains that we've made. But ultimately, I think if we were to have a curriculum that instead of talking about how awful it is to experience gender dysphoria, instead talked about how we can affirm gender and create gender euphoria, that is a more positive outcome. I think if we had a curriculum that actually helped us to teach about the positive affirming capabilities that that healthcare professionals have, 
when they look after queer and LGBTQ plus patients, the power that they have to give them good health, good mental and physical and sexual health, I think that would be a way more positive place for us to be than where we are right now. Um, and so I guess that would be my message. I would like us to move to a place of joy and it will take a while before we get there because um, there's a lot of trauma to work through. But that would be my message and my kind of hope for the future. So much to think about there again. And I, I really like that. A lot of what you've said is something I've never thought about before, but that, that's already given me so much to think about in that one minute, um, let alone the entirety of this podcast. Um, and finally, Will, what what's your vision for the future? So there's two ways that I wanted to answer this question and I'm going to give you both because I feel like one wouldn't be suffice without the other. Um, I think my first one is that what do I want to see in terms of this form of medical education? I want to see myself in it definitely. I want to see all the other people that are in it um, already carrying on. I'd love to see how everyone can develop it together uh, which brings me to my second point is that I'm very lucky to be part of a project um, called Lima, the LGBT Inclusive Medical Education Alliance. Bit of a mouthful so we shorten it to Lima. Um, I'm on the executive committee and this is kind of our goal. We want to see everyone working towards the same goal and lots of people are all over the country and we'd like to bring everyone together um, and I guess seeing myself and also the other folks that we have here tonight and everybody else that's walking, working towards the same goal, working towards that by getting kind of medical boards involved and changing the medical curriculum from the top to the bottom is kind of our major goal that we'd like to do. Um, and I guess that's how I'd like to see medical education change, especially in terms of LGBT health. I'd, I'd like to see the top dogs have a go at changing it as well. Um, and that's what our kind of goal is. We're not, we know that as Lima, we're not the ones that are going to change the curriculum ourselves, but definitely the ones that want the change. And we want to bring everyone else that's already involved together to help create that. Absolutely. That's kind of what I would say I would like to see. Um, I would also add, um, it would be remiss of me not to mention something very topical and important right now um, that I spend a huge amount of my personal time working on, which is the need for medical schools to include teaching on the dangers of so-called LGBTQ plus conversion therapy and the need for an inclusive ban um, on it. Um, and if you are a health uh, educator who is listening to this and you work at a medical school and your medical school has not signed uh, the GLAD or the uh, LGBT Association of Doctors and Dentists uh, charter committing to the six principles, one of which is joy that I spoke about earlier, um, contact GLAD and we can try and give you the details of how you can sign up uh, because um, this is a key issue um, that all medics should be horrified at personally. Um, yeah. Amazing. Thanks so much for that. And I absolutely would recommend that all of our listeners go away and look at, at both the work that Liam is doing and also the work that Glad and, and Joe have done regarding um, regarding the charter against so-called um, conversion therapy, because I think they're both really, really important pieces of work. Um, and I think that's a really lovely note to leave you on this evening. So I'd just like to say a massive thank you uh, to our three guests this evening um, and to Katie, my co-host. And I 
absolutely think that this time next year we'll all be back here again I think and we'll pick a, a slightly different topic because um I could spend the next I don't know how many days talking to you all and I've I've really enjoyed my evening uh, so thank you very much Thank you very much for joining us this evening. I wanted to say a very special thank you to our guests, Dr Joe Hartland, Max Karen Tree and William Ballard for such rich discussion. I'd also like to thank my fabulous co-host, Katie Stevenson, Dr Asim Javed, who edits these episodes, Dr Cleon Pardo, who designed our logo, and to Amlunya, who made our theme music. Finally, thank you to everyone on the TASME committee who supports with the production of this podcast. I've been Dr Rob Cullum. You can find out more about TASME, ASME and our many other groups at our website, asme.org.uk. And please do make sure you follow us on Twitter with our handle at TASME underscore UK. Join us next time for our fourth episode where we will be discussing gamification with Julie Brown from the University of Cardiff. Thank you again for listening to Tasmi Time and we look forward to seeing you again soon.